0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today is our September edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. In the last several months, we've discussed housing, growth, and political dysfunction among other topics. This month, we grapple with both a cause and an outcome of those forces, inequality. Bryce has been researching and teaching this topic for many years, and it's something I constantly consider in my role as an educator. Bryce, how are you doing today? I'm good. So a lot of these discussions start with the premise that inequality is is a problem, but you know, is it a problem? And if so, why? I mean, we live in a capitalist society. Isn't aren't winners and losers sort of just part of the uh, system? Certainly, to some
1: degree, yeah. When it comes to thinking about whether or not it's a problem, so a there's a there's enormous disagreement within the populace yeah. about yeah. whether or not it's a problem, um, and it's also a problem because when we ask about it, we also been asked frequently whether or not people even understand the problem. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people don't understand the levels. So there's two buckets we can put the problem into, right? So the first bucket, the easiest bucket to think about is simple fairness. Right. Okay. Which is, do we think that a highly unequal distribution of income and wealth is, quote, fair, fair for society? Yeah. Is it just fair? Is this what we, you know, is do we think this is, you know, a just and, you know, matches our notions of what we think the world should be? And then there's notions of what we call efficiency. Right. Does it impede how well we can just maximize total well-being okay one of the issues that we'll hear about is oh when people when the rich get too rich they have power and they start using that power to what we call rent seek yep. right so they become monopolist or mm-hmm. monopsonists and they try and they put up barriers that try and impede other people's opportunity people climb right. the ladder and then they pull it up they'll pull it up, it, up, pull it up behind them put right it down. and and then that and in pulling it up they make they keep themselves in a position of privilege but collectively we're all poor right so it's the size of the pie versus just the pure allocation of the pie right so there's lots of discussion on both of those buckets right Mm -hmm. so the on just the the fairness bucket people literally just disagree on what the fair distribution of income and wealth is right so we've seen survey after survey lots of different people have studied this there are Disagreements, core disagreements about how much inequality is acceptable from just a pure fairness perspective. Okay. Right. Now, when we try and move into, well, what are the implications of inequality for efficiency, the size of the pie? There's still ongoing debate about exactly how much of what we see is inefficient rent seeking versus, look, this is just a market outcome. And, you know, so that is, I think, still a, it's an area of ongoing research. So I won't pretend to have like a, oh yes, we've definitively established that Mm -hmm. inequality by itself is bad for the size of the pie. There are some studies that do find that. And there certainly are evidence that rich people can employ their resources to engage in rent seeking, which is bad. So, certainly it exists. It's just a question of what's the magnitude. Sure. And then obviously, to the extent that you want to do something about it, you know, or any policies that we might create, um, there's going to be trade-offs with those. And are you better off with an inequality or better off pursuing something that reduces inequality, but potentially at some sort of visioning cost? Those are still ongoing areas of debate. The easy one is just to say, well, do I feel okay about this? And a majority of Americans don't. They actually, you know, I mean, various, several recent studies have found that a majority of Americans are dissatisfied with the level of inequality that they perceive in society. Whether or not they accurately perceive that, the level that we see is not, a quote, ideal sure. from a whatever, whatever it is that you people are answering when they answer a survey. Right.
0: So a lot of doors open there, Bryce. Maybe let's take a moment to just be a little descriptive here. I mean, I, I think a core piece of what you said there on the fairness side is that we all seem to have some internal sense of what we think is fair and unfair. And there's wide variation in, in the population about that. But beyond that, I mean, inequality is something we can measure and we've we've lived through, and most listeners have lived through several incidents that uh, in the recent past and, and one we're sort of living through right now that have, yeah, have increased inequality. Right, the Great Recession. You know, it, coming out of the Great Recession, we saw high income earners gaining a higher share of income and wealth over that period of time, and we're sort of living through that again with COVID in many ways. At least that's what the initial data are showing that the rich are getting richer and it's kind of at the expense of, of middle income folks. Is that a fairly accurate description?
1: Oh uh, yeah, so uh, we have two types of inequality. We have income inequality right. and we have we have wealth inequality. Yeah, let's um, let's break those both both down, define those two. Okay, so first when we think about income, think of that as either the share of all income that goes to say the 1% or 10% or sometimes you look at it as a ratio, say, well, what is the earnings of the 90th percentile person versus the 10th percentile person. Okay. But income is is what you make. Yeah. How much you're earning or, you know, so we have wage inequality, but we also have then, you know, other forms of income that people make. So wage income or broader income, the basic pattern is the same, which is it was high in the early part of the 20th century. It then fell pretty dramatically, bottomed out in the 50s and the 60s, and then started rising again a little bit in the 70s, but really exploded in the 80s and the 90s and has continued today. Wealth inequality looks pretty similar, right? It was high, it went down, and it's gone up a
0: lot, right? And it's gone up a whole lot at the very, very top. Are those sort of the folks that we're thinking of, the Bezoses, the Elon Musk, are they sort of the the modern day versions of the Carnegies and the Rockefellers? Is that an accurate kind of analogy?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, back in the early 20th century, the top Tenth of a percent controlled roughly 20% of aggregate wealth in the country. And that's roughly where we are now. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit lower today, just a bit. You've got a handful of people who control enormous amounts of the aggregate pie. So the top 10% control almost 60%. 60%? Yeah. Wow. uh, Of of wealth. And the top 1% are getting close to a third. So yeah, it's wealth distributions are, you know, highly unequal, right? And, you know, you think about the bottom 50%, they basically own nothing, right? So the median uh, American has almost tr- no wealth, you know, sort of net worth, right? So assets minus debts. Yep, It's always been concentrated, but it has increased in concentration at a relatively steady rate over the past 40,
0: 50 years. So, you know, from a descriptive sense and sort of mapping that onto fairness, like we, we sort of have this story we tell ourselves about the American dream and whatever that means to the listener, you have to sort of decide for yourself. And then from there, you have to sort of decide, like, to the extent that's something to which we aspire, are we getting there? Does everybody have what we think is a fair shot of that deal? The data would suggest that maybe not.
1: Yeah, so I mean, now we're moving into you know inequality itself is an issue, but if if there's a
0: ton of mobility,
1: right, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? It's like meaning oh,
0: people can move from one yeah, class of income to if another.
1: If if there's if people are constantly shuffling the deck, Got then it. you know it's it's I think a lot of people's notions of the unfairness of of inequality is that it's dynastic, mm. right? It's like well, not only am I rich but my kids will be rich and my grandkids will be rich. And whenever we talk about inequality, we almost always have to talk about mobility because it's one thing to have a a really wide distribution, but if people are constantly shuffling around, that's one thing. But if there's not much movement, then that's a different issue. So yeah, it's worth always bringing uh, mobility into the discussion. And there's a lot less mobility in the United States than people typically imagine. There is less intergenerational income mobility in the United States than almost any other developed country.
0: Okay. So there's a stickiness to the, the your station in life in, in, in a lot of ways. And we can talk about all the reasons that is, right? And you're, yeah, did you go to school with Raj Chetty? Okay, so Raj Chetty, is he is he back at Harvard? He was he at He is Stanford. back at Harvard, yeah. Okay, anyway, this guy, you clued me into his research and people can go online and pull up this map. I think it's at the county level incredible how it shows how economic mobility varies by location throughout the United States.
1: Yeah, I mean there's there really are significant differences in mobility and you know there's a variety of explanations for that having to do with you know local policies, local economic factors, mm-hmm. you know, I mean those maps are fundamentally about kids who were born in the early 80s looking at where they are in recent years yep. relative to where their parents were in the 80s cuz that's when they were you know, be born or whatever it is. And, you know, so if you happen to grow up in the Bakken, that cohort was the basic, the primary beneficiaries of the Bakken oil boom, right? right? So you're going to get mobility there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you don't live in a Bakken, then it's a questionable what's driving it, you know, and how much of this is about education, how much of this is about um, just, you know, differences in culture or whatever it is that's
0: going on in in, in your community, and I just want to pause. When we're saying mobility, we're not talking about people's likelihood of moving geographically. We're talking about their ability to move from one class of income to another. That's right. Yeah,
1: we're talking about relative to their parents and relative to their peers. Okay. Right? So and peers who had the same type of parents. There's significant variation in uh, in how much mobility exists uh, at the neighborhood level, and so. It's not like there's a simple, oh, yeah, you know, there's just a simple story of, oh, this is an American issue, right? It's that, well, look, there's differences uh, across place, and so there's sure. a bunch of different factors here.
0: And so, some of this, as you described, the, the Bakken oil region, I mean, some of that is sort of geographically driven, you know, to some degree by chance, but I would I would assume overlaying that is is some... Um, Urban rural divide as well. Urban centers probably provide more economic mobility, or is that not true?
1: No. To be honest, the highest levels of mobility are a lot of the great northern plains. Okay. There's definite regional patterns. The south has some of the lowest levels of income mobility. You know, the upper plains, Midwest, you know, I think if you're just looking broadly. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times, you know, we look, this is a county level map, and so it's easy to miss small counties, sure. right? That Because they're not big in terms of your eye. But there's just enormous variation in how much you can expect there to be mobility. But, you know, I mean, look, the levels of mobility that we're seeing, even in the higher places, in the places with the highest mobility in the United States, you achieve some of those levels that we see in the higher mobility countries in Canada and Western Europe or whatever it is. So, you know, there you do have some places that appear to perform at the levels that we have seen in other parts of the world, Uh but yeah, you put it all together, mobility in the United States is, yeah, it's not particularly strong, certainly not enough to, and it certainly hasn't grown enough to compensate for the rise in
0: inequality. We'll be back to my conversation with economist Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Marty Mornhenweg, and you're listening to A New Angle. Go Grizz! Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with economist Bryce Ward about income and wealth inequality. Is it a problem? And if so, what can we do about it? So we we know that you know mobility we describe mobility we described inequality do we know from a historical standpoint can we say anything about the stability of a civilization or a society based on the amount of inequality in it people have tried to make that argument yeah um and I remember reading papers on that
1: probably 10 years ago maybe 15 it wasn't like oh yeah this is a rock solid thing that we yeah. can just take to the bank in part because, like, well, what's the tipping point, right? In some sense, it's it's. It doesn't seem like it's a structural parameter, right? Like, oh, if you reach this level, you automatically become unstable, sure. right? It's like in this context, we're surrounded by these policies, you know, it seems like it's kind of idiosyncratic enough that yeah. it's certainly look to the extent that a large majority of people think that this is bad and it rises to the level of urgent, then it could become destabilizing but you know the 60% number said that was a pew survey that yeah, came out yeah there's no
0: like inflection point last year
1: or something like that right
0: come out or something well
1: and they also ask people like so rank inequality relative to all these other issues right it was not near the top mm. it was kind of in the middle right people were much more concerned about kind of core bread and butter these affect my material welfare standards, right? Because that's one of the issues that, you know, you end up talking about when you talk about inequality is inequality is fundamentally a relative comparison. Of course. Right? But my absolute level matters too. You know, if the poorest person is way better off than the poorest person 50 years ago, even though there's more inequality today than there used to be, how do we evaluate that, right? Yeah, and there's all sorts
0: of weird social comparison effects within that as well. You know, even though if I'm better off, if other people are more better off, I might not feel as well off. And that's a so you know that's a psychology issue, exactly. right? Because
1: some people are going to you know compare on the absolute level if they remember the actual poverty. Right. So, you know, again, if I grew up a long time ago and now we're much richer and I remember what it was like being poor mm-hmm. in the 60s or 70s. And now it's like, well, being poor today is definitely in absolute terms, like likely better yeah. than uh, it was then, you know, because there's better healthcare and there's better consumer products. Even, you know, I can't maybe I can't afford all of them, but like some of the things I have are definitely better. So, you know, there's definitely issues around why do we, you know, what's what are we caring about? And, you know, and that's part of the reason why a lot of the discussion of inequality has focused on the fact that in absolute terms, real wage growth at the bottom of the distribution has been very anemic. You know, it's there's some, if you look over, depending on the period you look at, but there have been long periods uh, over the past 40 years where incomes at the bottom were getting worse. Mm -hmm. There's been little bumps here and there. But, you know, certainly, you know, but when we talk about this from the end of the World War II through the, you know, the start of the 70s, Everybody grew together, right? This is kind of, this is the jumping point for a lot of discussions of inequality. It was kind of, you know, the graph that I saw when I was a graduate student 20 years ago, the professor called the growing together versus growing apart graph. Mm -hmm. This long period where basically everybody's just growing at the same rate. And to the extent that there was any disparity, it was that the rich were growing slightly poorer, uh, growing slightly slower than the poor, but it was a tiny little bit. And then you get kind of into the 80s and since, there's been the growing apart Right. And there's just been this massive disparity in terms of, you know, real incomes rising a lot, you know, the higher up the distribution you go and growing a little bit in the middle and maybe a little bit at the bottom, depending on exactly when we're measuring it, when we're starting, when we're ending. But, you know, there certainly has been, you know, a weakening in terms of. Just the absolute growth at the bottom, which is its own. You know, again, there's the relative issue, and then there's the absolute issue. And the question is: is in absolute terms, are we actually rising all of the boats as well? So it's sure. it's just another layer of the complexity here. Which is, you know, just to kind of summarize, because we've got a lot of threads going, right? Uh-huh. So we've got we've got okay. Well, how much are we in absolute terms making people better off today, or over the course of their life today, versus relative to the past, right? We have relative comparisons both to prior generations, like your parents, versus and as well as my peers, right? And so that's, you know, in terms of, you know, how much mobility I have, right? And then and there's just the relative amount of income inequality that we have in any given year. And then there's the amount of wealth inequality that we have that we accumulate over our lives, right? So there's all of these different... Chunks.
0: Well, I did want to kind of touch on one thing you talked about there. We often use, and maybe it's the psychological factor that it's sort of dominant in recent memory for most people who are alive. We, we sort of use this post-war period as a, as a reference point. There are folks, I think, Piketty kind of being the leading voice, that argue that that's a historical anomaly. That you know, World Wars One and Two, and the Depression just destroyed so much wealth at the top that all of a sudden is growing together was the the result that it, it sort of uh, was an equalizing force in many ways.
1: Yeah. And Well, and it, it's more than just the whatever destruction of wealth at the top, right? So other things are happening because on the income inequality side, we also see, so it's not just that wealth concentrations fell, just the annual income inequality fell. Okay. And the, and the story of the 20th century, at least the story of the 20th century in the United States, you know, is, the, the the catchy phrase uh, you know comes comes from a book by uh, Claudia Golden and Larry Katz who were mm-hmm. two of my dissertation advisors right. called the race between education and technology and basically the story was look there was income inequality at least as much as we could measure because we don't have perfect data on wages and and education and all that kind of stuff but to the extent that we you know there was kind of a skilled you know a higher wage skill group and a lower wage group right and that gap was high and relatively persistent and then it all collapses roughly in the same period. And the story that they tell, which is a very compelling story, is that essentially what happens is there's always been this demand for certain skills. And certainly in the industrial age and through even now, um, we, we talk about what we call skill bias, technological change, right? Which is that the technologies that we create frequently replace certain, certain skills but they make certain other skills more valuable, right? And so this there's, there's there's bias in the technology change. It favors one group of people mm-hmm. versus another group of people. Sure. And the and you could really simply do across the 20th century, you could just do this with high school versus not high school and then college versus high school, right? right. You know, they used to actually worked really well as proxies. In more recent last 15 years or so, it doesn't work as well. I'll talk about that in a second. But so we had this change. Technology is constantly producing this demand for these more skilled workers, you know, in industrialization, blah, 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 blah. But so what happened in the early 20th century was the high school movement. We sent kids to school in the United States. We, We massively increased educational attainment over the middle part of the 20th century. In the simple supply and demand framework, there's this demand for skills, but we have this moment of just massively increasing the number of people who complete high school and massively increasing the number of people who increase college. And those were based on policy decisions. Absolutely policy decisions. The high school movement was a movement that, you know, comes in the early 20th century. It starts late 19th century, uh-huh. but you know, and it had enormous success, right? So if you look in the 1930s, in the United Kingdom, roughly you know, I want to say like 35% of 14-year-olds were school in school and four percent of 17-year-olds were in school. Wow. Right in the United States, those numbers were seventy-five percent in the '30s. Sure, we sent people to school, and then you know we sent people to college once we got them through high school. Mm-hmm. But we've kind of plateaued. We've increased educational attainment a little bit in the last forty years but not at anywhere close to the rate that we were doing so in the early part of the 20th century. So the race between education and technology story on the income inequality side is basically this, is that look, technology kept creating demand for yep. more and more skilled people, but there was this period where we actually on the supply side met the demand and that lowered the wage premium to college. The college okay. premium fell, the high school premium fell at the exactly at the right times. But then something happens starting around the 70s where that premium the demand side keeps growing but the supply side doesn't respond and the you know the education premium has just continued to increase over time. It's mm-hmm. slowed down a little bit in recent years. But it's still basically as high as it's ever been. And so, you know, when we talk about the 21st century change, the simple categories, college versus high school, really did explain a lot of not the tippy top inequality, but say the 90th percentile versus the 10th percentile inequality. Uh In the 21st century, it doesn't work as well. And we're seeing increasing inequality even within college graduates. And, you know, this is where we start to say, okay, well, what's going on there now? My personal theory is that there's just, we've just shifted the skills a little bit and they no longer align as neatly as college versus non-college. Okay, we got to get more granular. We have got to get more granular, right? So a lot of what we've seen in terms of, well, who's experienced the fastest wage growth in terms of occupations or whatever it is, it's where you're marrying social skills and analytical skills. And those social skills aren't as easily proxied by any kind of college degree because most colleges don't, teach them. And there's also just shifts in terms of, well, oh, there's lots of STEM value, particularly right out of college, that creates some inequality within college that then changes over time as we have mobility and over time. But that's a different level. But you know, so that's kind of what we think about it as in terms of the 90-10 level-ish. Now there's also the story at the top. And that's where we talk about, you know, and the market side stories is not just about skill bias, technological change, although I guess it's sort of that we think about superstar effects yes the easy way to think about it is just in terms of like sports right right um, it's easy to visualize a superstar a, you know it's yeah it's like well it used to be like I was a this, or a singer or whatever it is I mean think about a 19th century singer yep there's no recording right the only way for me to make money is to perform at a concert hall my market is limited by the amount of people that we can fit inside of a concert hall. Then we get like recording and we get high quality recording. and We get all sorts of, tech, you know, and now I can like, you know, boom out. Right. Um, and, you know, lots of people, I can now collect more and more of the market for, for entertainment because I can satisfy that demand. you got a higher reach. I've got much more reach. And we see that, right? So, you know, it used to be like the top 1% of like musicians, so in the early eighties, they got about 25% of all ticket sales. Now they're like 60, right? So this is kind of just superstar effects, right? Or if you think about it in terms of soccer leagues, there's soccer leagues in every country across the globe. But now because of the cheap digital distribution of soccer matches, Everybody can watch the Premier League right, or the Champions League. And, the and, you know, and... on all this kind of stuff. Even if I'm in Brazil or the United States or what you know, instead of being having just I just watch my local league, now I can say, well, look, there's this league over there and I like it a little bit better, mm-hmm. the players are better, whatever it is. And that creates this just, just enormous market, which then means that, okay, well, the more of the money flows into that market and superstars get more. Now it's important to understand that when the superstar gets more they're usually with somebody else who used to get it. So this is just, you know, it's taking money and giving it to the superstar and taking it from the lower So there's a of zero market. sum
0: aspect to how this Yeah, is I mean, there's always
1: growing markets, right. right? So to the extent that it increases the overall size of the market, that's great. There's more to go around, but to the extent that there's some share that's increasingly going to superstars, you know, we have this issue. And so there's these market-based stories for inequality, but there's also non-market stories for inequality. And these have to do with people abusing the, their power in the market or the fact that policy hasn't kept up, right? Minimum wage policy, or we've, you know, decimated unions, or, you know, and those are all kind of pre-production, but we also have post-production. Just what do we do with taxes? What how much are we redistributing after the fact? And and so, you know, there's this issue. I mean, there's this big fight about well. What's the story that explains it? And then once we explain it, what do we do about it? And, you know, there's all sorts of different levels that we can intervene, but it's very complicated.
0: Well, Bryce, we certainly opened up many doors in this conversation. I'm not sure that we closed any, but the great part about this series is that um, we can choose which doors we want to go down and we will um, keep the conversation going. I look forward to uh, chatting with you again next month. Uh, Yeah, we definitely... uh... Opened a lot of doors. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, be sure to be in touch. If you have questions, follow-up, comments, visit our website, anewanglepodcast.com. Let us know what's on your mind and uh, what questions you have, and we'll do our best to address them. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.